there was a famous Italian anti-fascist, Carlo Tresca, yeah. who emigrated to New York. He was an agitator sort of around the New York left at that time. He was assassinated in New York City, and we're still not sure by who. There's a reasonably good uh, evidence that it was possibly mobsters. Top piece, this was also sort of the high point of... No, no, the, the official People's History of Violence position is it was suicide. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, he was, he was <laughs> upset. He was upset. Um, no, we should, I think like we should cover that for another episode. Okay, Col- yeah. Colorado Tresca takedown. Okay. A real, is that the official position of suicide? Welcome to A People's History of Violence, a bonus episode. We're both, yeah, you paid, and you, you this is your treat. Thank you so much. So, uh, this, this is, of course, the podcast where we go entirely too deep in histories, assassinations, fears, crimes, coups, cover-ups, conspiracies, fears, and trials make enemies of true crime. Mm. And it's ideology. Someday, someday they'll notice us. <laughs> someday they'll notice us. Okay, uh, but today, I mean, today we're talking about a, a pretty what sometimes just gets called a street murder, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Carlo Tresca, anarchist, organizer, agitator, murdered on Fifth Avenue, and I read the documents. He documents. did the he did the digging, folks. He made the cork board. With the crazy mm-hmm. string. No, no I, I, I literally went to the New York archives. It was a it was a whole experience. It was a fun little bit of actual historical detective work. But in the New York archives, they have some, um, most maybe, of the investigative files from the Carlo Tresca case on microfilm. Uh, so our sources for this episode are going to be that, uh, my work that I did. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> on a very rainy day in new york as well as uh two books dorothy gallagher's all the right enemies life and murder of carlo tresca uh dorothy gallagher was actually the same author who did that kind of hagiographic biography of uh julius and Ethel rosenberg mm. that uh, mike Mirapol brought up but you know much less hagiographic on this one but also you know pretty 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 nice to to mr tresca as well as i'll have to insert the title later i can't run, find my pdf file anyways so it was a dark and stormy night on january 11th of 1943 now i'm going to, have to start out that way so you're probably wondering but you, peter who is carlo tresca and uh why was he murdered so carlo tresca he was as isaac said he was an anarchist he was an organizer He organized with the IWW. He was born in Italy. He came over after fascism, right? Or before fascism? Yeah, before. I mean, maybe we should back up a little bit and and kind of set the scene here. So Carlo Tresca presents a little bit of a, it is an unsolved murder mystery, although it's a very peculiar one, because even though Tresca, who was shot in the head and in the back on Fifth Avenue in New York in 1943. In daylight, right? Uh, it was at nighttime, um, and it was a very dark street thanks to wartime uh, electricity rationing. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though he was shot there, and even though we have a near certainty of the the name and uh, of the gunman and what he was doing and all his relationships, we don't know who orchestrated the killing uh, mm-hmm. with any certainty. Although we're going to 
answer that question as best we can. This we is, have a pretty good idea. Yeah, not not unlike, you know, Murder on the Orient Express. Uh, the problem is more a surfeit of possible people who did it than trying to figure out, like, uh, not, not who pulled the trigger, but who set it up. Right, right. We, well, we had a joke on a prior episode that uh, Carlo Tresca may have died of suicide. I meant that as a, a pretty bad, absurd joke. But honestly, this guy kind of killed himself. And I don't mean that as any judgment on Mr. Tresca, but if you can imagine, one, a very kind of charismatic, uh, persuasive guy um, who you might be familiar with on the left, but who nevertheless stakes out their own position mm. on everything and is also like kind of wheeling and dealing with alliances all over the place. And he... Mm-hmm. And provoked a lot of powerful people who 100% deserve to be provoked, right? He was doing the thing yeah. that we were that we're all supposed to be doing, but you could argue that he got out ahead of uh, where, unfortunately, the rest of the left was in terms and, of... And I mean, not to be hagiographic, but also like he, was, he wasn't just an idealistic guy who provoked all the right people, as the, as the book says. He also made a whole series of kind of shifting quid pro quo mm. alliances and agreements to try to stay afloat in a very different left-wing mm-hmm. milieu than when he started out. Mm. He made alliances, well, very uh, kind of tenuous alliances as a, as an FBI informant, as a kind of independent leftist allied with various Trotskyist factions. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, and there's significant rumors on this that at certain times he had kind of protection by various mafiosi Mm -hmm. gangsters, not the mafia generally, because I mean, speaking realistically, the mafia as such, like as a national commission that kind of didn't exist at any point Mm -hmm. during this narrative, but he really played with fire. Yeah. So he starts out, he's born in 1879 uh, in Southern Italy. He comes from a landowner family. They had money uh, until they didn't. They socked him away to the seminary, failed out of that. He was an atheist. It's it's worth noting that in Italy, anti-clericalism, opposition to the role of priests in the broader social order, and sometimes just opposition to the existence of priests or churches or, or God was kind of a sine qua non. For the left there, given how, you know, quite recently, you know. It's they, a very contemptuous uh, yeah. opposition to, to, to priests, too. Like, the way that he wrote about it, you get the sense of, like, that the the kind of, like, uh, very uh, pious, you know, it, it's kind of coded as, like, neutered priest mm-hmm. class full of not just lies, but also, like, a lack of, like, yeah. real virility and kind right. of, like, placidly accepting the world around. And there's, there's a whole lots of condensations of, like, the, the priests this, like, feminine, right. like, effeminized, right. like, figure. Uh, whereas, you know, the, like, explosive macho anarchist. Right, the Chad anarchist versus the, the virgin, virgin priest. priest. Yeah. I mean, literally virgin yeah, priest. Literally. <laughs> yeah, but, um, so in any event, he he winds up uh, sort of in on the Italian left. He becomes a socialist. He gets involved in socialist organizing uh, with railroad workers, but which in turn, in you know late nineteenth, early twentieth century, Italy means he can't get a job with the civil service, the other traditional field for. Uh, upper class people socking away the uh, the third, fourth, and fifth sons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Um, I mean, something that's interesting about Tresca's upbringing here, we mentioned he comes from a landowner family, but there's a very, like, almost uh, medieval relationship yeah. that he's brought into in this landowner family. He, and that actually affects his ability to kind of converse and be a man of the people, which is they have this kind of, he has this like kind of like distanced way he was raised in which the peasants of the village are actually like big parts of his upbringing in mm. life. Like he has vivid memories of, of like being told stories and fables mm. while uh, sitting on the, on the lap of a, a peasant woman who he knew uh, at harvest time, mm. the peasants on his on his father's land would bring in their harvest into the main kind of plaza or mm. or clearing in their house that they live in and and put it all there. It has a very like manorial yeah relationship. But the weird flip side of that is he doesn't have like a high handed um, urban way of right. talking. He talks to them like he's one of them right he also goes to the uh the local courthouse when he's uh, a young boy like he knocks off school plays hooky goes to the courthouse and watches lawyers make their arguments and imitates their gestures and stuff at home that's the annoyance of his parents yeah but uh as peter said the family's finances collapsed almost be you you get the sense that uh the father was from like a bygone like Don Quixote time and just kind of co-signed on everyone's loans and mortgages or whatever who came to him. So when mm -hmm. the financial crisis of the late 1880s, early 1890s rolled around, those finances all collapsed. Yeah, it reminds me of a great novel, uh, The Leopard by Giuseppe de Lampedusa. That, that kind of, it covers a period earlier than this to cover the period of the Risorgimento, the unification of Italy. It's about a Neapolitan lord who, you know, he's kind of, he's almost as, I know this is a little goofy, he's a bit of a Tony Soprano figure in these. He's a big, <laughs> you know, charismatic, powerful man with powerful appetites. And he feels that his way of life as a, as a, as a lord is slipping away along with, you know, the country of yeah. sorts in which he was raised into, you know, the kingdom of Naples. And he has, you know, a nephew or uh, an in-law, I forget which, it's been a while since I read it, who, you know, informs him that, you know, there are ways that you can make something out of this new liberal democratic order. And that's where, if you've ever heard the line, in order for things to stay the same, things have to change. That's uh, a Delampedusa line. Oh. So yeah, well, eventually, and this is actually pretty common in anarchist and socialist leftist circles in general in Europe you know there's a lot of there's a lot you know people get exiled they go abroad for work you know people don't stay in the same place as often as you might assume so he winds up crossing the Atlantic to the US but not before stopping off in Switzerland so as okay. a as a as a radical political organizer activist militant he was kind of hunting around Italy he had two different newspapers which he tried to mm -hmm. That's basically what he did. He's he he was ostensibly a journalist, but really the broadsides that he would do um, were agitprop on strikes and struggles that were going on, and also broadsides against you know the local landowners or capitalists and so on. When he goes into uh, exile, as these these are repeatedly shut down, and he's increasingly persecuted by the Italian state, which is. Italy at this time is just exploding. Mm -hmm. um, there's famines going on in Sardinia mm -hmm. and so forth. Uh, he uh, 
goes to Switzerland and briefly crosses paths with a uh, young, at that time still socialist, Benito Mussolini, oh, wow. who at this time had not converted to or not had not solidified the ideology mm-hmm. of kind of a revolutionary turn to the right, a revolutionary mm-hmm. reaction, and was still basically in this kind of like macho socialist, right. like flirts with anarchism type of mold. Right. So, but eventually Switzerland's on enough, he comes to the United States. <laughs> right. Uh, he he gets involved in various st- strikes as a, a actually much sought after speaker and mm-hmm. organizer with the IWW. He's involved in the Lawrence strike here in Massachusetts. For those of you unfamiliar, IWW is the uh, industrial workers of the world, the legendary, you know, anarcho-syndicalist organization that calls for there to be one big union they don't and that will basically replace a state once it gets big enough right instead of socialists taking over the state the idea is you don't need a state all you need is the syndicates to create wealth and production and then we can you know, I, I'm sorry, I'm probably being reductive here towards the poor anarchists. No, and, and, and not at all. But although the the fact is, is that the IWW at the time included a lot of political tendencies, mm. even though all of them were were syndicalists. And this gets kind of like kind of academic. But there was Tresco. There were also, frankly, a, a lot of um, a lot of political socialists that supported yeah. the IWW because oh, yeah. they believed at some point the state will wither away. Yeah. And the IWW were also the ones who, you know, they were they were the ones who would get involved anywhere. Yes. They would get down anywhere, anytime, basically. Uh, they were also clearly, they seemed to be the ones that the state was most afraid of. They, in, you know, some of the worst crackdowns in American labor history happened because they were afraid of the IWW. Yeah, and I mean, Tresca's role here in in large part is America is a polyglot empire at this time with massive industrial operations, massive textile mills, massive coal mining fields, and so on. And in each of these places, you essentially have um, segregated quarters or camps Mm -hmm. on the basis of language, nationality, and so on. And a large component of that, once we get into the early 20th century, is this basically huge wave of Italian peasantry Mm -hmm. who have been kicked off their land by various landowners or starved out and immigrate to the United States, where they uh, continue to basically lurk at a starvation wage. There's tremendous workplace injuries. Mm -hmm. Um, As Dan Lazar pointed out, if you were to look at the number of casualties, number of fatalities from labor violence, in the 20th century, or the early 20th century in the world, the United States is only behind one country in terms of how many workers get killed, and that is Tsarist Russia. Mm. Uh, it orders of magnitude more violent than France, than even Italy, where many of these workers had come from. And Tresco, of course, fluent Italian speaker, <laughs> mm-hmm. but also like he had a, a kind of a plebeian plain spoken way of doing this talking and organizing and presenting of his political views that resonated mm-hmm. he would also he he was a man of of large appetites yes. as it were he loved you know drinking mm-hmm. eating uh, <laughs> I imagine he was a big opera attender romancing with these italian workers and he would you know crash on the floor 
when he was staying with some miner out in Pennsylvania. He had no problem rubbing shoulders uh, with any of them, as Dorothy Gallagher points out. Equally well, though, he is able to kind of like code switch into American Bohemia and rub mm-hmm. shoulders with people like, uh, you know, Eugene O'Neill and John Dos Passos, mm-hmm. uh, major writers of the time, and thereby raise funds mm-hmm. for his newspaper that he found called Il Martello, The Hammer. Mm-hmm. Where he does largely the same thing he was doing in, in Italy, but just among the if, this kind of massive Italian transplant community. Mm. Brief, uh, brief discursion so we can cut if we need to. Sure. Italian-American identity these days, you know, uh, I know there's probably many Italian listeners who aren't this way and are, if anything, more irked by it than I am, but I have noticed how most white identities, white ethnic identities these days are frankly reactionary, you know, and especially pro-cop which is interesting to me because I can tell you the the tradition of their immigrant forebears that today's Italian American meathead supporting the cops, the gravy seals as they're called, uh, protecting quote unquote, you know, uh, Christopher Columbus statues in, in Philadelphia and going around harassing and beating people. I can tell you that their great grandparents who would have immigrated to this country Almost all of them would have spit on cops. They would have hated cops. They were probably atheists and hated priests too. And I'm sure, you know, many of these meatheads think that Catholicism is some ingrained part of their quote unquote heritage. Uh, And, you know, they probably didn't give them up like that. Again, to reference the Soprano, sorry, everybody. But like that episode where uh, they're upset about Columbus Day being challenged and they ask their one actual Italian friend, Furio, what, what he thinks. He's like, Columbus is from the north. I hate that guy. Uh, so you know, there's a, there's an interesting aspect of this in which you can read the story of the murder of Carlo Tresca as actually this real hard breaking point mm. in which a very contested Italian identity. And we'll go more into this that Carlo Tresca represents one wing of. Mm-hmm. I mean, his his three main enemies in Il Martello are priests in the church, mm-hmm. uh, mafiosi, gangsters, who mm-hmm. he just saw as fleecing people, racketeers, stealing their money, stealing mm-hmm. their their hard-earned bread. Yeah, he's not upset about them bringing in booze or whatever, gambling. He's upset about them fleecing. Yeah, and capitalists in the capitalist state. Mm-hmm. Like, those are his three enemies that he's going over over and over again. And he saw Italianness. Uh, specifically the the Republican tradition of Mazzini mm-hmm. and Garibaldi. He saw himself in the continuity of that mm-hmm. as being this revolutionary, democratic, mm-hmm. um, modernizing, plain-spoken force. And these three things is the enemy of it. And now those three things are con- considered like the components yes. of mass market Italian identity. Right. And and hell, at least, you know, say say what you want about the Italians, at least they had to shoot a guy uh, to to kill the better version of Italian Americanness, the Irish Americans of which I am one don't have that kind of excuse. So don't think I'm picking on on the Italians unfairly. No, but there's like there's an element of suppressed radicalism in all of these yes. kind of ethnicizations. I mean, uh, and now I'm going to go on like a, a long digression, I guess, <laughs> and, and I probably will cut this. But it, it was interesting reading this like 1990s book by uh, former SDS radical Tom Hayden. Oh, his Irish, Irish book. His oh Irish God. on the inside. 
But the the weird utopian thing at the end is he he had a notion of like you know actually you know we should be deconstructing whiteness we should yeah. be becoming not white again and becoming the nationalities again yeah would be a component that of David becoming Hunter, not white. Um, David Rediger basically at one point he was kind of trying to he was one of the OG whiteness studies guys yeah. He uh, he was trying to push for that, too. like, oh, we just have to become German or Irish or whatever again. Uh -huh, which... And it, it, it's very strange because, like, now it just seems like ridiculous to us, and I don't think it was. I think the battle lines were solidified yeah. back then, because nowadays, like, the the nationality claim is is just kind of used as a trump card to try right. to yeah. keep there being claims on use. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, talk, yeah, he tried to flee to Ireland at one point and be like, he 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 gave himself a different name, like Emmett O'Grogan or something, and was like, I, I want to be Irish now. And they were like, all right, son, we'll give you a cup of tea and then put you on the plane back. All right, son. Anyways, have a good day. <laughs> so what anyways, is, so back to Tresca and Il, Il Martello, because things really reach a uh, uh, inflection point with Il Martello in the years 1919 to 1920, because Il Martello isn't just an influence here in the United States. This is a transnational community that's going back and forth to Italy, has relatives in Italy, and are, of course, affected by all the radical things that are happening in mm -hmm. Italy at the time. And Italy seemed like they were, had a really strong chance, in some sense, right after World War II, of becoming some kind of socialist republic. Oh, you mean World War Two? Yeah, World also, War One. World yeah. War One. I. I mean, arguably after World War Two as well. Both the times. CIA had was around. By that yeah, time, so. but we're talking about World War One. Yeah. Um, so you have these massive land occupations by peasants, uh, turning them into cooperatives. You have factory occupations by workers, and Tresca's old acquaintance Benito Mussolini um, was gathering up in his words the uh the gutter refuse of every jail to form mm -hmm. them into criminals fascisti mm -hmm. to go around breaking strikes and of course they were in the pay of the landlords mm -hmm. and factory ones factory owners factory owners yes as as uh tresca said in il martello every day armed bands selected from the dregs and scum of the italian gutters and recruited from the jails the most savage bloodthirsty gangsters go about setting fires to the chambers of labor leagues and circles the martello reported in april of 1921 these bands of assassins are known as the fighting fascisti finding groups or bound mm. together groups in fact they fight the poor at the order of the rich which was just a, a completely accurate description. Mm -hmm. The other thing that happens at this time, of course, in Italy, which really just the reverberations kind of reach back to Il Martello, is the, the PSI, the Italian Socialist Party, like many parties, including the United States, Fishers mm -hmm. and the Italian Communist Party splits off, partly because at that time, the, the Bolsheviks in the Soviet Union did not believe that Italy having a revolution, a full social revolution, was a good idea for them, mm -hmm. um, ironically. Mm -hmm. So this sets the stage, however, for what becomes the more than passing concern of Tresca and Il Martello for all of the 1920s, which is fighting the presence of fascism in Italo-America, mm -hmm. as it were. We have a very vague idea these days of how popular fascism was and how heavily it was promoted but this was 
not just something that like organically happened. Mussolini essentially sent an envoy to go organize fascist support groups among the Italian-American emigre community. And Tresca, his broadsides and specifically like anything you would hear from a con, any like bit of like gossip or a leak or whatever that he would hear about Mussolini, um, he would print Neil Martello and it would, of course, get to the Italian shores. So he, he became an enemy of Mussolini mm. in a very real sense in the 1920s. But also, Mussolini wanted to organize support in the United States among that immigrant community to build a favorable trade relationship mm. as he's building this new dictatorship state. Mm -hmm. And as we already talked about uh, in the Rosenberg series, there was, Mussolini had a certain following in the U.S. well outside of the Italian-American, right? A lot of uh, conservative and, and sometimes also, you know, just, I guess what you could call non-progressives, progressives of a authoritarian bent uh, at times, liked Mussolini. They liked what he was selling. It seemed that it was the future, right? You get rid of all this labor conflict and uh, whatever else. And you just start, you know, you, you have someone in authority building the future. And uh, kind of in this time, and we're talking about the 1920s at this mm -hmm. point, Tresca becomes probably one of the most public faces of an anti-fascist movement. Dorothy Gallagher describes it this way and also describes the organization of these fascist groups in the United States this way. In 1924, Mussolini uh, apparently sent a uh, movie villain type guy, Count Theon de Revelle, received a mandate from Rome to take charge of the Fascist League of North America. Mm -hmm. He was to organize Italian immigrants into a coherent force for Mussolini and silence Mussolini's opponents. So he, oh, wow. basically to replicate in the United States what Mussolini had already done in Italy as far as taking out leftists and radicals and labor leaders mm. who might oppose him. Thus began a conflict that lasted into the middle 1930s. Meetings of fascists and anti-fascists were stormed by opponents. Mm. In New, sorry, in Newark, New Jersey, in August 1925, six men were stabbed when fascists burst into an anti-fascist meeting. Mm. In November 1926, the printing presses of Il Martello and Il Novo Mundo were smashed by armed men. Anti-fascists led by Tresca, Tresca and his friend Pietro Allegra burst into the ballroom of the Hotel Pennsylvania during a celebration of the third anniversary of the March on Rome, Mussolini's mm. coup. A cordon of 100 policemen prevented what would have been certain bloodshed. So he had mm. really just pitched battles here. Despite the presence of more than 100 police and government agents, three men were shot on the occasion of a visiting group of Italian delegates in November 1926. Police protected all fascist marches and demonstrations each Columbus Day and Garibaldi Day. They were present at the funeral of Rudolf Valentino, which has made the occasion of another fascist demonstration. Hmm. And to kind of sum up Tresca's philosophy here at, at the time, uh, we don't quote, we don't argue with the fascists, said Tresca to Matt Seisman. When they offer to debate, we'll, we say, we'll debate when our brothers in Italy have a free press and the right to speak and meet in the streets. Hmm. Until then, we do our arguing with guns. Hmm. You Americans think this is very Latin and very far away. You fool yourselves. Hmm. Fascism is already here in embryo and it can't be stopped except with out and out war. Either they get the drop on you or you get it on them. And if they get it, you can wait for the resurrection, uh, which, damn. Yeah, it's, online. 
Yeah. So you can see he's already making uh, making making enemies. Yeah, and not not just figurative enemies. At one point, nineteen twenty six, there was a, a kind of a bomb plot against Mussolini, yeah. uh, organized by some. Still, yeah, and obviously, Italy had a vast underground at the time, organized by some plotters. And Tresca received a phone call in El Martello saying, "You, you bastards, did this." Yeah. And uh, three men kind of rolled up on him and attempted to kill him. Besides that, Mussolini also uh, attempted to instigate a deportation proceeding against Tresca in the United States. And this was actually used as a weapon a lot mm. by the Italian government against dissenters who had emigrated to the United States, was essentially dropping a dime on them mm. to the Immigration Naturalization Service at that time, INS, what would later become ICE in the mm -hmm. 2000s, to say, oh, did you know that you have this firebrand radical mm -hmm. on your shores who will surely be, you know, coming up with bomb plots before you know it? And sure enough, many that they would that would then open up naturalization investigations to see if these people had actually become citizens. And if they were unsuccessful in immigration court, they would be deported to Italy, where they would, with some certainty, be imprisoned and killed. Mm -hmm. So it was a death sentence for a lot of these people to be deported. And J. Edgar Hoover, who at that time was at the Bureau of Investigation, was essentially carrying out a lot of these kind of alien investigations that they were called. Uh, Tresca was particularly vulnerable because apparently he bragged to anyone who knew him that he was not an American citizen, that he remained Italian. And Mussolini, for his part, started up a proceeding to strip him of Italian citizenship, effectively making him stateless. Mm. Uh, but he did eventually become uh, an American citizen. He, In addition, uh, one thing that's worth pointing out is Mussolini had a campaign in Sicily in the 1920s, essentially responding to somewhat to local grievance in order to make himself more popular, but also supposedly to some personal slights and threats. But he had a massive anti-mafia campaign. Mm -hmm. And as a result, large numbers of mafiosi and racketeers who were in Sicily at that time, as well as, you know, Camorra and, and so on, came across the ocean and settled in New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. Tresca had already apparently had a lot of encounters with uh, Camorra in Pennsylvania working with the miners because they were trying to fleece the miners of their wages mm -hmm. and running extortion rackets. But the anti-mafia anti-fascist, anti-church tone continued. You know, just to pause on one, one thing, something that occurred to me reading Dorothy Gallagher's book is that there used to be Italian-American cel celebration of Garibaldi Day. Right. Yeah. Col Columbus Day was supposed to be this completely neutered, mm. um, really talked-out holiday. Yeah, it was like Irish-American politicians who came up with it, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it was literally just like a handout, like, you get your own day. It's yeah. the most inoffensive one, the guy yeah. who, quote-unquote, discovered America. Right. But before that, they had fucking Garibaldi Day, right. which is a revolutionary right. holiday. Not even a communist, folks, so, you know, that's even a communist. more than halfway. And at one time, widely celebrated America, oh, yeah. Garibaldi. Oh, yeah. Didn't they try to get him to, like, lead the union yes. cases at one point? Yeah, some people did, yeah. And he offered to, to help yeah. uh, the union army and he did.